Today on More Than a Test, we are joined by Shelly Coleman-Spiegel. She's one of the founders of Californians Together. If you're living in California, you might have heard of Californians Together. If you're not in California, what you've heard about is the seal of biliteracy that every high school student in the United States has the ability to have added to their diploma. That was one of their initiatives. They're going to tell us about all of the ways they had to fight for that in California as states attain the seal of biliteracy and all the things they're doing for emerging multilingual learners across the country and in California. Shelly, thank you so much for being here. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to to chat with you. It's great. I think it's going to be a great conversation. And you were just mentioning that next year will be the 25th anniversary of the, of the founding of Californians Together, where you are. So why don't you go ahead and tell people who may be listening but might not know, what is Californians Together? So uh, just to let you know a little bit quickly about our histories, we were founded right after the vote in California on Proposition 227, which the, which basically made bilingual education illegal in our state. And so um, there were six organizations that formed the No on 227 Committee and ran a statewide initiative. We were all educators and community people. We had never done this before. And when we didn't defeat that initiative, then we got together um, and we said, we need to form an official organization to protect the rights of students and their parents for a um, effective education for English learners. And that was how Californians Together was birthed in 1990, in 1998, right after the passage of that Prop 227. Okay, so what were you doing when Prop 227 came through? I was employed by the Los Angeles County Office of Education. I was the consultant in charge of a unit uh, the Multilingual Academic Support Unit, and I worked with the 81 school districts in Los Angeles County to improve and support uh, education for English learners. So I've been a teacher, I was a principal, I was a district, um, a district specialist, and then I did work for 27 years at the LA County Office of Education. So I worked countywide and statewide on issues of educating English learners prior to my retiring and coming to Californians together. Okay, so Prop 227 passes while you are in the county office working yes. in service of English language learners. Exactly, yes. Wow, and so then what, what did that do to your role? So that's what that's why we formed Californians together because all of us were scrambling to figure out exactly what is it that we can do to continue supporting students in their learning of English and is there any possible way that we can support them in terms of protecting their home language and uplifting their home language at school so we became um we became very uh, targeted on looking at high-quality English language development, supporting of parents for them to understand what the districts and schools needed to offer the students. It wasn't that they could just be put in sink or swim classes. They did need to have specific and intentional programs to help them learn English and become proficient. And then there was a very, very small waiver process where schools could sustain a bilingual program if an uh, aggregate amount of parents requested it and there was a system, it was very difficult to do. But some places did, some very small places. We had about 30% of our kids in bilingual programs before Prop 227 and after it went all the way down to 3%. So very few students. 
Wow. That is a huge draw. That's way more than I was expecting you to say. So then you formed this group, Californians Together. The goal was obviously to, to not pass 227, but 227 passes. And, and, and you all stay together, right? So this group, this coalition stays together. And, and, and what did you decide to do next? So we formed the group after the passage. Okay. We got together and we formed the group. And then we began to look at legislation and policy work. That's what we do. We do research, legislation, and policy work, all to better improve programs and services for English learners or emergent bilinguals, however we want to refer to them. And so um, we did. We, we looked at, we were very successful in passing um, what was called English Language Development Standards, which really then... Um, gave districts and teachers standards that they needed to met, meet on how to teach and how to organize their programs for students to become proficient in English. Um, we passed legislation to get money to develop materials, instructional materials, so teachers had materials to use in their endeavors with the students. And then all along, we were trying to figure out how do we change people's hearts and minds to support bilingualism. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the state seal of biliteracy that California has. I have. But um, we did that during the English only times. We passed that legislation that gave that still gives recognition to high school seniors who meet criteria for knowing English and a second language. They get a seal on their diploma certifying that they're bilingual and they're biliterate. So we were, we were all along trying to figure out how do we move forward in the area of promoting the assets that our students bring to school, their language and their culture. And the seal of biliteracy was one that was, uh, has been very successful, very, very successful. Do you have any idea how many kids either like last year or in total have gotten a, a seal of biliteracy in California? Yes, over 350,000, close to 400. And speaking 46 different, over 46 different languages, including American Sign Language. And then what happened, we had no imagine. This was far beyond our imagination that um, New York asked us to come there and tell them how we did it. And then Illinois asked us to come there and tell them, tell us how we did it. And today there are 49 states that have state seals of biliteracy recognizing seniors uh, for being bilingual and biliterate when they graduate from high school. So when you look at the work that you've done, I was about to ask you this, but I think you may have just answered it. When you think about the work that's happened in Californians together, is the seal of biliteracy the thing that you're most proud of? Or when you or all the advocacy, or is there something else that you also think like this is really important? So we're proud of that work, but we're also very proud of the fact that we overturned Proposition 227 in uh, 1998. Um, in 1998, uh, no, I'm sorry, in 2016, sorry, in 2016, there was another proposition on the California ballot. Called, it was Proposition 58, and it was called um, EDGE, Education for a Global Economy. And uh, the tag on that was multilingual, uh, multi, multilingual education for all, something like that. And that passed with 75% of the electorate supporting multilingual programs in our schools. And so the entire English-only uh, uh, policy in California was overturned in 1998. And now we have 
many, many more communities and school districts that are establishing dual immersion programs, developmental bilingual programs. And um, we've, we're very excited. We got funding um, through the legislature and the budget to support new and expanding bilingual and developmental bi programs. And so we're, um, we're doing that work. And at the same time, we're looking at different subsets of English learners and what are their specific needs. So, you know, we have a lot of newcomers coming to California from countries all over the world. And um, it's very difficult for teachers in schools to really have targeted and intentional programs when there aren't a large number in every classroom. So we're really looking at how better we can support schools and teachers in addressing the needs of newcomers also. So when you were started talking about, you know, the initiatives of Californians Together, you talked about advocacy, you talked about policy, and you talked about programs. But and the last research. thing you said, what, yeah. when obviously research goes into all of that, <laughs> but the last thing you said was changing hearts and minds. When you when you look at what happened in 2016 with this multiling, multilingualism and, and, and the things that are available in schools now, do you feel like you've also changed hearts and minds? Or how, how do you feel about that? And, and do you think that's just in California? Or do you think that's widespread? I, th I think we have changed hearts and minds. And I think school districts were um, also in an English only, you know, frame for 18 years. They were doing an English only frame. And to make that shift took a lot of effort for all of us. Um, but now we have leadership in many, many of our districts. And the teachers who were previous bilingual teachers and were teaching English only are now very excited about coming back and being able to um, help students develop a high levels of literacy and language in two, in two languages, right? And so um, there has been a real change in the hearts and minds. I think, I think you see it um, in our led, you think you see it in community leaders and in policy leaders. Um, when Tom Torlakson was the state superintendent of public instruction, he passed what he called Global 2030, and he had benchmarks for increasing the amount of bilingual programs, for increasing the numbers of bilingual teachers who are available in the field. There were all kinds of benchmarks. And the current superintendent, Tony Thurman, um, has adopted that also. And when he was in the legislature, he was the author of the bill that provide $10 million for creating and supporting new programs. So the leadership um, in the state really has changed. And um, I think there is a much more receptive um, approach to looking at the assets that our students bring to our state and our community. Yeah. And seeing other languages as a strength, right? And not, and not something to be hidden or swept under the rug or God forbid, um, illegal. So, right. um, and, and that's, that's amazing. And I feel like there's so much, I mean, you just listen to this list. We've only been on here for less than 10 minutes and you've already been like seal of biliteracy, change in policy, all of these amazing things have happened in California. And I know Californians together has played a huge role in all of these things. But I wonder, like, what what keeps you up at night now? Now, when you see this huge change, the leadership has changed. All these great things are happening. What's the thing that you're really worried about at this moment in in education and and by literacy and and um, educating students who speak other languages? Well, one of the one of the issues for us in terms of being able to really um, upscale and be able to include many more many more students to have this opportunity is really the shortage of bilingual teachers. There's a tremendous shortage of bilingual teachers. There are many more school districts and many more um, 
many more um, teachers and classrooms that need bilingual teachers. And there's a very, there's a, a shortage. And so increasing the pipeline of teachers who become bilingual teachers is something that we're, that we're working on. And actually in the current state budget that the governor just signed, there's $20 million. We got $20 million in that state budget to support uh, teachers becoming bilingually certified. So what it does is it really encourages those bilingual teachers who are sitting in English-only classrooms to come back with some additional support and some additional training to, to, to now come back to bilingual classrooms. There are teachers in our schools who are bilingual but never went for their bilingual certification because what it wasn't needed when we had English. So there's money to help them go back and get bilingually certified. So um, it really is really, you know, the need for having um, staff as well as programs for the students. And uh, so we're looking at, at different ways to really support and build that pipeline. Okay, so what I hear is before you're focused with the students, right, that and making sure that they had what they needed and that they were supported for, with, with the languages they spoke. And now it's all about the teachers, right, and making sure that they have the resources they need and can, can teach in these classrooms. Can I tell you, though, um, at one point I taught bilingual kindergarten, and an experience that I had was when I got my, my materials for the year, my curriculum and stuff, my stack of English materials was maybe five times larger than what I got in Spanish, um, and so I'm, I'm curious for you, I know you're talking a lot about teachers, but is, is it the, still the same case where teachers who are teaching in two languages will get a lot of resources for English, but then have to be creating all of their own or translating the English into Spanish in order to have a lot in Spanish? So it's not as bad, but okay. the stacks are not equal. Right. So, you know, um, you know, when you want to have library books for students, not just the textbooks, but when you want to have library books for students, for them to engage in really um, interesting texts and interesting stories and be able to learn about um, about science and, and about history, those materials are really minimal these days. And, and there's a need for many, many more. There are many more from when I began, and there are many more from when you began also, but there are not enough. Um, so. Um, so, for instance, districts will have a choice of maybe three, four, or five materials for teaching English language arts, and maybe there's only one or two for Spanish, right? right. And there really are no other materials that have been produced on the statewide level for languages other than Spanish. And so we have programs in multiple languages. We have programs in Vietnamese. We have programs in Korean. We have programs in Armenian. We have programs in Filipino. We have programs in Arabic and so on and so forth. And for those materials, they're very scarce. And so materials in languages other than Spanish are even a smaller stack than what you have for Spanish, right? So right. we're looking at materials in multiple languages for sure. And I, and I fully believe you, and I'm sure that is a huge gap, but Spanish seems to be the one that bothers me the most in that there's clearly a need in this country for Spanish materials, right? Whether or not we need every language, I think could be debated, right? But at least in Spanish, what do you think is keeping curriculum developers, program developers, you know, like I work for an ed tech company. It took us a few years to get going in Spanish. Why is that, Why are we so slow to get to building what needs to be built in Spanish? It, a lot of it has to do with the market and money because right. it's expensive to produce those materials. It's not, I mean, there is a cost 
And so if the cost is not being reaped, then the companies don't move ahead and produce. But what's happening, interestingly enough, in many of our school districts is they will tell publishers, I'm only looking at materials if you have a Spanish equivalent program. And I'm not going to look at materials that just have an English program, right? And so that, that, that then increases the viability of creating and the monetary reap that they can um, get from, uh, from the, the cost that they have in terms of producing them. So a lot of it has to do with cost. And so um, some of it would be um, ameliorated by some investment from the state. Um, to help in the cost, defraying that cost, that additional cost, and making sure that those materials are available. Okay, so what I've just heard you say is, as a consumer, if you're a district um, decision maker or a school decision maker about purchasing, you can always say, you want my money, you need both languages, right? Exactly, and And districts too. We've had that experience. I mean, I think a lot of the reason Amira in Spanish exists is because of Texas. You know, lots of schools in Texas came out and said, we're not interested unless it can be used, you know, like they have these programs where kids learn in English on Mondays and Wednesdays and Spanish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And they're like, if the kids can't use it on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we're not interested. And so exactly. they, you know, they've used their buying power for that. But, you know, Cal- uh, Californians together has had similar success without necessarily having buying power, right? You all have, have created huge advocacy initiatives and really, and really supported teachers and, and schools in California so tell me how you're doing that. Like, how are you having the impact that you're having? So um, many of so many, so actually we're now 17 staff people. We started off, as I told you, one person and a half time right. college student. So over the last, um, over the last really six, seven years, we've grown to 17 people. And so a lot of our work now is really um, based upon, I think, our good reputation. I have to be honest about it. I think our reputation is one that we are really looked at as humble and honest and that we're not out to make money. We're not out for fame. And I think people see us as advocates for students in schools, right? And so part of our success is that. The other part is many people like myself are are people who have been in the K-12 sector for many years, so we're very credible. We speak the education language. We know what's going on in schools. And we also have very good contacts with people in schools. And so I think that's been a part of our success. The other part is an interesting initiative that we have to build advocates in in the education community. So we have an initiative called English Learner Leaders, English Learner Legacy and Leadership Initiative. And every year we work with 15, with 50 or more, 50 or 60 mid-career educators, maybe parent organizers, maybe uh, nonprofit people also, to build their advocacy skills for English learners. And we now have over 200 people who have gone for our advocacy training just on how to lift their voices and be able to speak to the needs of students within contexts from preschool all the way through universities. And so creating the voices that echo each other across the state about what's important, I think has also made us very successful. Okay, so someone else was worried about an initiative that they really care about. For you, it's been bilingual education, but lots of things. I've heard you just say three different things they they need to have and do. The first is like 
having people, having, you know, uh, people who understand that you are valid and that they support you and trust you. The second is keeping your humility and staying true to what you believe in, right? That it's not about money. It's not about any sort of, you know, fame or anything like that, but like, this is what you truly believe in what the research says. And then the third, the third is really finding this grassroots swell ability. How do you, you know, help the people who also share your interests and values and grow that. Is that what you would say? Like if, if it's my community, let's say it's not California, but here in Colorado, something was passing that I was really worried about. Are those the three things or is there something I'm missing? Well, the other thing is, you know, Californians together is a coalition of organizations and that's really our strength. So we have 27 parent, professional and civil rights organizations that are members of Cal. That's who our membership is, other organizations. These other organizations may have multiple um, multiple areas that they work in, but when they work with us, they send somebody who we have quarterly meetings. They come to our quarterly meetings and they generally send somebody from that organization who is also an English learner advocate and knows about English learners. So we have the ability of not only working uh, with upcoming leaders that we work with, but also across the state with with powerful organizations who have very strong voices. And so when we do some work, like developing the seal of biliteracy, all of our organizations were supporting that and supporting that legislation to get passed to create that seal. So having a coalition, building leadership, and then the other pieces that you spoke to, I think are really the underpinnings of what, what makes Californians together a strong, a strong force and, and a, um, a very clear voice as to what is needed in our schools. I'm so glad you said that. I think so often people who want to make change think they're supposed to stand alone and like be, you know, carry their flag. And so to hear you say like, actually, we reach out to lots of people carrying lots of flags, but we all have this one thing we share and we come together, we share this one thing. And that's, that's our strength, I think is a really neat, um, position that I, I don't think is often spoken about. So that that's really neat. So you're at 27 different organizations are part of California then together. Um, and, and, we, and, and we represent just to say we represent the entire spectrum of the education community. So we have parent organizations, we have preschool organizations, we have organizations representing teacher educators and higher education. We have teachers associations, we have administrator associations, we have school board members. So when we come together in our meetings, we hear voices from all over the education spectrum. So if an idea comes up, you know, someone will say, well, that doesn't really work for us as administrators. I, I'm not sure that's going to sell. And then teachers would say, well, if we could do it this way, it would really, really make a difference. So what we're able to do is hear from these voices to really create a proposal or create a policy that we think really has strength behind it. Have you ever created a proposal or policy that not all 27 would sign on to? Well, we have an agreement that we agree to disagree because as I said, we there's no way we can make everybody. Uh, uh, but uh, I have to tell you, we work on consensus. We never take votes okay. and we've never had anybody saying, oh, this doesn't work for me. I can't do this. That's never happened before because we work on consensus, sometimes they'll say, well, we believe in it, but we can't take that position right now. That might be some, sometimes of what's happened, but we've never had any, any organization say, oh, we're done with you. We don't agree with what you're doing. These organizations have, ha well, we've multiplied over the years, but nobody has left. 
nobody has ever left. Wow. And I have to tell you, I think that's more rare than maybe you even know. Um, I think that it's rare for organizations with lots of different interests, values, and stakeholders to be able to come together and continuously work together and not have rifts that kind of separate people out. So that must be at least in part due to your leadership because you were the executive director of California's director, Californians Together for how long? For 12 years, yeah. For 12 years. For 12 years. years. Okay, so let's talk about that transition. I know we've talked a lot about Californians together and the amazing things you've done, (laughs) but let's talk a little bit about you. So you were working at the county office and then 227 passes, and so you start Californians together as a volunteer. As a volunteer, right. At at what point did you transition into being the first employee and executive Well, when 227 passed in um, 1998, I became the executive director in 2007. Okay. So so it was a good period of time that we were really running the organization on a volunteer basis. We had a, a a consultant that we just paid minimal to send out the notices and call the meetings together, so on and so forth. But everything we did on a volunteer basis, right? Okay. And, and so when you decided to make that change of like, this needs to be a full-time position, how did you know? How did you know it was time to make that change? Well... I love doing, I have to admit, I love doing advocacy work. And when I was at the LA County of Education, I was very fortunate that over, I was there 27 years. And over that period of time, I had some very, very flexible administrators. Some administrators, not so flexible, but I did have some. And um, I was, uh, and I did advocacy work. While I was at um, the LA County Office of Education, I was, I became the president of the California Association for Bilingual Education, which is our sister organization, and we do all the advocacy work together. They're a member of our coalition of Californians together, um, and they have been in existence many, many years longer than we have. So, you know, for two years, I was, uh, for many years, I was on the CABE board, California Association for Bi. So I did a lot of advocacy work, and I kind of said to myself, I'm tired of staff meetings. I'm tired of, you know, some of the regulations that are in it. And I, you know, I got to be the age that I could retire. And I said, wow, I could do this full time. I could be an advocate full time. And I don't have to worry about what I say, or, or maybe I shouldn't say it that way. Or maybe this is, you know, so I, I, I was very excited about having the opportunity. And um, the, those of us who were volunteering, we're going to continue working because, you know, one person can run the show, but that would at least give us really some leadership and some organization structure to be able to move to move forward in a much more um, cohesive way. So I uh, loved it. I just loved it. So I you still retired do. and then became the executive director. Yes. Yes. And I, yes, I'm still, <laughs> still there, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just feel like every, I'm, I'm hoping that someday when I retire, I do the same thing, right? That I have that energy and excitement. And I think that just shows your passion for what you do, right? Yeah. That someone else might retire and be on like a cruise, you know, in the Mediterranean and you're like, no, we got to keep going. There's work to be done. Um, so you retired and you became the executive director and now you've grown to having 17 employees. You've done some of these huge initiatives. Where do you find your energy? How do you, how do you, you know, find the spirit to do all of this work? So part of it is, um, we have a very, um, educators who work on behalf of English learners and their family are, I think, very, very special people. So 
we have a network of um, we have a network of colleagues. Many of us have become very close friends over the years, and we support each other. And we are excited when we see the next generation coming up and taking the banner and speaking up on behalf of our families and our students. Right. So um, the the other way the other way energy comes to this work is when you have a win when you work on something for a long, long period of time, and then you win. And then, you know, this is all worth it, right? You know, with a, a short story on the state seal of biliteracy, we passed that bill two times. And it went to Arnold Schwarzenegger, and two times he vetoed it. Two really? times. The third time, Jerry Brown was governor. So we passed the bill three times, and then the governor signed it. So when you get a win like that, after all that work, you know, it just spurs you on. You go, okay, you know, we can do, you know, si se puede. I mean, it all works, right? That That is a really good story. I didn't know that. And Arnold Schwarzenegger just let me down. But <laughs> okay, so that's a big win that's keeping you energized. Can you tell me about a time you didn't win that was really hard? Yeah, well, when, when we lost Proposition 227, I mean, yeah, we were, there were many tears that were shed. We were very, very worried. I mean, for us, it was like an abyss, you know, where, what do we, where do we, what do we do? Where do we actually went on a retreat for two days to try and figure out, you know, how do we not lose? Um, how do we not lose the, the ground that we had and how do our, how do our students and our parents, how are they going to be respected or how are they going to, how are they going to progress in school? So, I mean, it was a deep, deep loss. I mean, we, we, um, it was very, very tough. It was very tough. And we've had some other policy <laughs> losses Well, let me also. ask you something, because I feel like this comes up as a theme on this podcast a lot, because we talk to people who have done amazing things in education often. And what we hear, what I've heard, I mean, Dr. Jack Mostow said it last week, and some other people have said it, um, is that when they, you know, their inspiration, honestly, the spark that lit them was honestly their lowest low, right? Um, Dr. Jack Mostow talked about not getting tenure at the university, not getting to a project that he wanted, not getting some things published. And he's like, and then I started Project Listen. And in this situation, you're talking about something you never thought would happen, happens in California. And then it's also, you know, the, the fire underneath you. Do you think that's just who you are? Or is there a way we can all tap into that? Uh, As I say, we've had 200 people go through our advocacy training and their fire is in them. And um, we have 27 organizations that have representatives that come. The fire is in them. So we aren't, I am not alone by any, any imagine, any miles of imagination, right? There are a lot of people who have this. And I think what's important is that, um, that we're organized and that we're focused, um, and, um, that we, that we don't give up, you know, we, that we, you know, we always say we have to have a B plan. Well, if that doesn't work, so how else are we going to get at it? How else, you know, who would have thought we would have to pass that bill three times, right? You know, the, th- and there now was it's a, in 49 states, right? The and first now time it's you in, might have now it's like, in 49 states. So, I mean, you know, so, um, yeah, so it's just, you know, we've had some highs and we have had some lows, but um, we're, 
you know, we get together and we go, okay, so that way it didn't work. How else might it work, right? Is there another way we could get at this? And um, we're pretty good at uh, not being deterred. You know, we're not deterred. Okay, it didn't work when we tried this. Let's try another one. So sometimes we say, let's do a research paper. Let's put out, let's do a survey of what's going on in districts. Then let's look at the research and let's put out a policy paper. And then from the policy paper, we'll initiate some legislation. But we have the research and we have the the districts behind us and we have the policy work that we've done ahead of time. So sometimes we start that way. Um, there's a, 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 a group of English learners that have been English learners for a long time and they have not developed native-like fluency and to some extent they're still struggling. We call them long-term English learners, right? And we were very worried about those students. They were just getting lost. They were in mainstream classrooms. They weren't getting any special help. People didn't even know who they were. So we pulled together with a very small grant, eight school districts, and we had them go into the cumes of these students. We had them interview the students. We got recordings from the students. What did they need? What was going right with school? What wasn't going right with school? Um, And from that, we produced you know, a piece of research. And from that piece of research, we got four different bills over a period of time pass to attend to their specific needs in our schools. I'm so, so curious, what, what did those kids say they needed? Like, I, I know that there were lots of things and lots of pieces of research, but like, what was something that stuck with you? Well, what they said, first of all, is that they were in classrooms and many a time they didn't understand all of what was going on because their English wasn't fully native-like. And that the teachers were teaching at a level that was, you know, native-like for all the rest of kids. Nobody was really providing them with the help they needed to be more native-like. And um, and so districts started really creating, uh, um, like, history social science classes. And then we would group a group of them in that class. And that teacher knew they had to do some language development as well as history instruction for those kids. And um, I remember uh, that at one time we went to a high school and we pulled a student out to interview, or actually the LA Times reporter wanted to do a report on the students, right? And she pulled the student out of the class and said, so how is this class helping you? She said, well, at first I was kind of angry because I really didn't even know that I was still an English learner because I understand English and I can speak it and everything. I was kind of angry that I was you know, being targeted. But she said, this is the best class I have all day long because this teacher knows how to make it work for me and knows how to make me understand it. And I'm doing well. And she just pulled randomly. We didn't choose this student, you know, but students know, students know when they're being, you know, supported. And so, um, so, so that's that's the kind of work we do. It, sometimes we can just go straight forward and get a bill. Sometimes we have to create um, the context and the need. We have to create the context and the need, and then legislation or policy can take shape. Well, and I love that what it goes back to is like what's best for kids in this situation, right? So instead of just trying to force a bill, it's like, well, let's go to the kids. Let's go find this out and then get the right bill passed. So mm-hmm. that's that's really special. And I think that's something we can all learn from. I want to ask two questions about your advocacy training that you do. 
Um, and, and then I want to, and then we'll kind of move on, but I'm, I'm so curious. So when you think about the people who, who sign up for this training, I think the first thing, the first question I have is like, what is their inspiration? What, what is getting them to that place? And then second of all, what's the biggest gap that they have? Like, what's the one like tip we can all learn that you offer to these people? So, um, uh, now it's kind of word of mouth that the, the training is really good. But the first time um, when we organized it, we didn't even, we make people apply. First of all, they have to apply and they have to fill out why. Why is it that they uh, want to participate in this institute? And why is it that they want to become an advocate? And have they done any advocacy in their history? So we find out about um, their work and so on and so forth. So when we put it out the first time, we said, oh, gosh, if we just get 35 or 40 people, we'll feel good. We had 175 applicants. Wow. People want it. People, people want to want to be able to uplift the needs of their students. And they know it's more than just being a good teacher or being a good principal, that it takes more. And um, they want to be in a community. At the end of the four days, we always have people come together in a circle and talk about, you know, what did they get out of this and where will, what will they do? And then of course we stay in touch with them, but people say, I felt alone in my school or I was the only principal in my school district that speaks up for the kids. And now I have a community. Now I know there are other people who are also, who I can turn to when I, um, when I, when I do the work in my school district the one thing we, we teach them a lot, but we also teach them um, to never go alone when you want to talk about some policy or you want that you there at least needs to be two or three of you. And then you have to promise that you'll echo each other so that you just don't leave it for this one person to say, oh, we really need more Spanish materials in our classrooms. We don't have enough literature books. There's not enough science materials in Spanish. And the other two just sit there. No, we practice, actually. How do you echo somebody? So somebody says, and I go, yeah, in my classroom, that's that's the same way. And then the third one will talk up. So, so we teach them that in there, and they practice it. And then we teach them how to testify in front of a policy committee. Wow. And they practice it. We, we get a pretend policy committee sitting there and they have to write a minute testimony. And, and um, so there's a lot of skills that we develop in those four days. But community is an important skill. You need well, to be a part of a community. Yeah. And Shelly, if I was going to say there was one theme in everything that you've said is that don't go alone piece, right? And I think so often people are trying to go it alone and there's no reason for it. Um, I just heard Julia Raphael Baird say something along the lines of like, think about who's at your boardroom table. Like you're the CEO of your life. Who is sitting at that table that you're going to call when you have a problem? Who are you going to talk to about that? And I think you're totally right. that There's, there's no reason and we're all better off with a couple of people around us. And I think that's one, how we get stronger, but also how we stay humble, right? Yes, yes. Staying focused on what we really came to do. I think that's really great advice for everyone. And it's the thing that I'm going to take from this conversation. Um, I want to ask you two questions about, you know, where we're going next. Um, the first question is, I'm sure you're paying attention to science of reading um, and everything that's coming out from the Reading League. And I feel like I'm hearing a lot of conflicting arguments around what's available 
for Spanish speakers and science of reading. And so I'm just curious, where are you landing on this? Are you doing work around science of reading for, for bilingual students? And, and, and what do you, what do you know? What do you think? So, um, we are doing a lot of work around this and actually we are, um, we're doing work with the, we're, we're working with the reading league to right. find, try and find some common ground. So, um, but for us, what happened is that when all of this was percolating, which is over two years ago, right? It's just started percolating all over the nation, all over the nation. Um, we have, we have, we have colleagues all over the nation that we've worked with over the years. So we call people from your state, from Colorado. We call people from Colorado, from New Mexico. We call people from many, many states. What's happening? And they're all going, oh, my God, it's just taking over. And they're not talking about English learners at all. It's just, you know, this is what's good for everybody. So we got very nervous about it. So we now have an, organi an organization called the National Committee for Effective Literacy, and its focus is on effective literacy for English learners and emergent bilinguals. And so um, we're not either or, we're and. And so, yes, we think phonics is very important. When I was a kindergarten, first grade teacher, I taught phonics, although I didn't learn to read with phonics. I didn't even know what phonics was until I became a teacher, actually. I, I didn't even know. But so we believe in phonics, but that's not enough especially for English learners, because kids can learn to sound out words, but they don't know what they're reading. And so it has to be more than that. It has to be oral language development. It has to be, it has to be um, looking at cross-language connections. It has to be, um, there has to be learning about something when you're learning to read so that you can make sense of it. Um, so it's much more than just, a structured um, phonics program. And the, the Reading League agrees with that, but there's still a bridge for us to cross. We're not quite there. Um, but many, many more people now are looking at what this means for second language learners. So when I was at LA County Office of Education, there was an initiative. This is not the first time that this approach has been talked about. There was an initiative in the early 2000s under No Child Left Behind called Reading First. And that was happening when I was at the L.A. County Office of Education. And I would go into classrooms and sit down by a child who was reading. And I'd say, well, why don't you read to me? They read pretty well. And then I would say, well, what was that story about? And then they'd go, huh? And then if, and then if they were Latino, I would ask them in Spanish, thinking, well, maybe, maybe they could tell me in Spanish. No, I got the same look. So kids can learn to sound out, but they have to know what they're reading. They have to understand the words. They have to bring something to that piece, to that book. And you know, so I just, I just that, had lunch with Claude Goldenberg and he went, he talked at length about reading first and the downfalls and, you know, the ways that science of reading must be better than reading first because we what, what we're going to see are the similar results, right? That in the end, the results weren't great, just to your point. It was that we tried everything the right way and, and it, still, it still wasn't there. And I think the Reading League, when they were on the podcast, we're talking about how some people are putting on what's called a phonics 
what they're calling a phonics band-aid, <laughs> right? They're doing the same things they were doing before that weren't great. And then just adding a little bit of phonics and hoping to solve the problem. And I think that you're bringing, you know, to the forefront, what, what can happen after that, you know, how that can be a rolling ball of problems. So I appreciate that perspective. We talked about like my area of like what I'm interested in science of reading. When you think about, again, for the future, when you think about bilingual education, what, what are you most excited about next? What do you think is the next kind of frontier? What, what does that look like for you, Shelley? Uh, well, I think it just looks like um, gathering more and more support, being being able to make sure that we have um, – in California, we passed what's called the English Learner Roadmap. That was the policy that was adopted unanimously by the state board to supersede the English-only policy. And so what we need to do in, this, in California, and then other states are talking about this too, is, okay, now you have a good policy. But what does it mean to implement it? So what does it mean in a classroom, in a school, and in a district to align yourself with this new asset-based policy? Um, With the policy, the state developed a framework with four four principles, very important principles that one ought to align their program and their instruction to. And so what's important now is to do statewide implementation of this policy and really provide the supports financially and personnel-wise to make sure that we have cohesive programs that are true to what we know the research says and what we know the policy uplifts. And so um, we were very fortunate that um, in 2018 there was money set aside to do some implementation of this roadmap. And our organization did get a grant to do that. And we've worked three years across the state. We've touched over 13,000 educators multiple times through the pandemic. We did all this work, but it's the iceberg. But the places that really captured it are seeing exceptionally wonderful results. And so what we need now is this big statewide initiative to make the roadmap a reality in every district and every classroom in California. And if California can do it, I mean, there's no state with more going on than California. Exactly. It could obviously spread. All right, we are running low on time, so I'm going to ask you five questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, The first is that our podcast is called More Than a Test because at Amira, we believe our assessment is Um, more than just a benchmark assessment done three times a year, you can find out how kids are reading every single day, every time they read, but every guest hears more than a test and thinks something different. So when you heard the name of our podcast, what did you think of? Well, I was hoping because I, and then I looked it up, of course, but I was hoping it was more than just a standardized test that you were looking at really, how do we know, how do we come to know what students know and can do? How is it that we come to know that? So I was hoping that that would that was then you're right about. on then you're right on track and I, I I love that that's so great all right think about a literary moment in your life that was really important to you and what that means is a moment that you were with a book or with a person in a book that really is holds a special place in your heart and mind well I can tell you that I know exactly when I knew I knew how to read I was in Palm Springs on a vacation with my parents and they bought two or three I don't know if anybody knows about little golden books I don't know yes. if so they a little bought, puppy on them. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, all kinds of different. Yeah, there's one about a puppy. I opened it up and I could read it. I mean, there was the first, and I remember I ran over and I told my mother, I know how to read, right? And um, I still remember that feeling. I, 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 I can still remember that. So I think 
And as a first grade teacher, I saw that happen with children. Then all of a sudden they go, oh, my ass, I can read this. I know how to read. And so I love that. I just love that. It is a magical moment. And most people don't know theirs. So that's really lovely that you have that. Um, a piece of technology that you love. Oh, a piece of technology. I love my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I hear, you know what? I hear that more than you think. So that's great. What, what are you using your phone for lately? Like, what is well, it? Connection well, with people or? Yeah, connecting with people, really. Connecting with people, right. Yeah. Awesome. I think there are lots of people who listen to our podcast and in life who want to have the kind of impact that you've had. I mean, within 10 minutes, we'd listed off a large list of amazing things that have happened because you and your organization exist. What would be one piece of advice you'd give those people? Well, I think, I think what's important is to find your passion and do the, and do and dedicate yourself to the work for that. And don't do it alone. Make sure that you form, that you have colleagues that have that same passion and that you set goals for yourself and, and that you try and you make things happen. I'm, you know, our democracy allows us to make things happen and we need to, we need to take that opportunity, right? When we see something we need to make, we need to, um, we need to go for greatness, right? To go for greatness for all of us, for our students, for our parents, for our communities. Um, and with love, with a lot of compassion and a lot of warmth, right? Yeah. That's really good. And then the last one is one book you think everyone should read. Okay. Well, my favorite, one of my favorite authors is Doris Kearns Goodwin. I don't know if you know. I do. I'm such a huge Doris Kearns Goodwin fan. Her leadership book is one of my all-time favorites. I and know. Leadership in Turbulent Times, right? Yes. Is that the book you were going to say? I was going to say that book, but I've read other books of hers, but I love that one. But what I love about her is she tells a story. Right. She doesn't just say, this is what happened. She tells a story. And so I'm, I'm not great at reading nonfiction historical books, but I will read anything Doris Kearns Goodwin writes because I'm there. I am there with FDR. I am there with Abraham Lincoln. When she tells the story, you can see it and you can feel it. So I love her. And if she's on a talk show, I watch, right? I'm there too. I'm right there with you. She was the one who taught me that Teddy Roosevelt was shot during a speech once and kept yes. speaking. <laughs> oh my God, that's true, right? I yeah. love that story. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing that great recommendation and thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. I, I enjoyed having the conversation with you, Laura. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.